Well, again, good morning. Good morning as we come and we hear God's word preached. The blessing that I see that I am so excited for is that we can get into a book. We can, we can over time together walk verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and see God's word as it applies to us. It's been a challenge. We've been going through Hebrews. So the times that I've been with, with you all back and forth every five to six weeks or so, every few months, it's been a little bit each time chunking through Hebrews. But now we get to uh, come uh, and more fully week by week do that, except for this week, right? Except, so as we, it would be a joy to go through a book. We're actually going to take a little detour today. We're going to take a break from the path of Hebrews, but not to do something different, but to better explain what's going on in Hebrews. We're coming up on some pretty tough things that, are gonna, that we're going to need to work through. Hebrews is not an easy book. It has some, some very foundational truths that are to us meat and not milk, as the book itself says. And so for us to get ready for what will be coming with uh, the next few chapters in Hebrews, I wanted to, to go to another text, a text that is foundational to the whole Bible, to help us to see biblically what is going on in the book of Hebrews. So I ask that you turn in your Bibles, please, to the fifth chapter to the book of Romans, where we'll be reading verses 12 through 21. And as you're doing that, let's pray and ask for God's blessings on his word preached. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, we are so thankful for the glory of, of you revealing yourself to us through your Son. Father, you are worthy of all praise and of all of our worship here by your steadfast love. Lord, you, you spoke the world into existence out of nothing. We pray that now by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would hear your words of salvation, that we would hold fast to your gospel of grace, that we would understand why your son became a man so that he could be our representative. We ask that you would help us to see that more clearly and we'd hold fast to him by faith so that we can uh, be saved and that we would have fellowship with you. We ask now that you would be here uh, as your word is preached in Jesus' name and amen. So in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Now this is, I say this is the easier text. This is going to be a lot of repetition that you're going to hear. And it will be, um, it's not easy, but it is foundational. So I just ask, as the word is preached, do you listen and you hold fast to the basic streams between the first Adam and the second Adam? So now let's. Let's hear God's text. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. But the, free grip, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. 
For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. So if you recall, let, let's, let's, let's see where we were in Hebrews as to why in the, why in the world we'd be coming to a text like this. Uh, if you recall, the last time we were together in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, the author was continuing in the book of Hebrews to explain why Jesus is better than the angels in, to a particular people going through sufferings and trials. They were facing something that was so distressing so distraught in their lives that they were willing to go back to what they had previously had in the Jewish faith or in other ways and not to Jesus Christ. And so the author, we have heard, the author explaining that, no, Jesus is God. He's the creator and the sustainer. He's the exact representation of, of, of the Father. He's the exact radiance and the glory of God. And he warns them not to drift from him. So, one of the reasons why Jesus is better is because he's God. But what the author of the book of Hebrews is going to do, explaining why Jesus can be our advocate in our suffering, why he can, he can deal with what we're going through and save us, is because he's fully human. So the reason of his, what we're going to see is in his humanity, he saves. But why? Why did Jesus have to become a man? for our salvation. If he's God, can't he just save us? He has power to do that. But what the text, what the book has thus far shown is, up to this point, is building, is that no, Jesus had to be a man. He had to come fully to leave heaven, to leave the glory of all of the worship of the angels, to humble himself and come and become a man. He had to do this for our salvation. So Romans 5 here in our text is going to explain why. It's the foundational text that really gets to what is, what is going on here. And I'll tell you, this is, I mean, if you, you're following this, this is tough, right? And a lot of repetition, because we sometimes, we don't necessarily follow all this in our minds as to what is going on. This goes against what we would hold fast to normally in our society, in our way of thinking. But we do have to get past some of these short, these pitfalls, these dangers in not understanding. One of which, which we will not get past, is that I doubt you will all learn Greek in the next, I don't know. I, I don't put it against you. You know, we can, I, you know, I'm not, but I'm not as a pastor saying, you must all now learn Greek. Now, there's some of us that do have to do that, but uh, not all of you. But if you did know Greek and you read letters like this, the, auth the, the authors, the ancients, would use the language in a clear way of, 
of, of connecting truths in repetition. It would use words that rhyme. They would use words that sound sort of the same or going. And they would, so as a person would listen to the whole letter to the book, because it was all preached in one sitting typically, that they could sit there and they could follow it because they knew the Greek and they knew what was going on. Now, we're not going to get there, but it's okay. But that's not really our biggest stumbling block. You know what the biggest stumbling block is to understanding this? Is that we're Americans. It really is. This, the biggest stumbling block is how we think as individuals. Self-sufficient to seeing our purpose and happiness. That the chief end is our individual identity of what we can call ourselves, what pronoun we use, whatever we want to say. It's our identity that matters the most in finding our fulfillment. That the, that's the chief end. But that's not the biblical way of thinking. And so, yes, we say, well, the world out there thinks that, that, that way, but we in the church, no, we don't think that way. Right? We don't think individually. Well, maybe it has crept in. Maybe it, maybe it does come in a bit to how even we think. I don't know how many of you have gone through various training of evangelism or how you share your faith, but have you ever heard the question, if you were to die tonight and you stood before the throne of God, why should he let you into his kingdom? Have you ever heard that question? That's a training way? Well, that is, that is a good question, but there's some danger in it. it is an, it's an American individual way of thinking because it thinks that you're going up to the throne room of God on your own, facing God by yourself based on your either ability to follow the law, your ability to do stuff, or whatever it is, that you're going to be judged because of you. And that is not true. It is not because of you alone or what you have done, but by who represents you, by which you will either be forever in the presence of God in his glory or forever cast in weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is not individuals as God, it's not as individuals that God will judge us. <clears throat> it is not as individuals that God saves us. And it is not God alone. It is not to individuals that God sanctifies us. So our text here will show us an answer. The way that this works is through covenantal representation. Big words, but we'll explain it. It's through the covenantal representatives as to how this all ties together. Two, two representatives, two camps, two armies, two flags. One of those you're going to be under. You're either going to be under the one or the other. And as you go forward, depending on it'll go well or not, based on that relationship. So then the reason that here he had to become man is because of this, that he is our covenant representative as humans. And we'll see that here today to answer this, this question and understanding it. So what, what we're going to do today is we're going to go through three points. We're going to look at what covenant representation means. And then we're going to look at Adam as a covenant representative and what he brings, which is disobedience, condemnation, death. And then we're going to look at what Christ brings, which is obedience, justification, life. And then we're going to look and see which camp we fall in. Right? So that's where we're going. So let's first, let's talk about this idea of covenant representation. What is a covenant? I don't know how many of our children have gone through the children's catechism, but if there is, what is a covenant? That is a question that we would deal with. And it is an agreement between two or more persons. Right? That's, that's the basic. That's what you've heard that maybe 
uh, there is an agreement between two or more persons. It sort of gets to the beginning of a formal agreement. It's a formal relationship. It's not just friends. It is formal, instituted by God, administered by him, binding himself in a relationship. And in that relationship, you have rules, you have, you have, you have a calling, you have sanctions. Do this and don't do that. And if you do, you're blessed, and if you don't, you're cursed. So a covenant is that it's a bond sovereignly administered with, with, with blessings and curses. That's really what it is. So, but it's more than just a formal agreement. It's sort of, if you think of it as a treaty or as a business transaction, there is elements to that. You're signing a contract. That is a covenant. You know, we do that still. But that language is in our legal system today, that we're dealing with covenants and bindings. Maybe you're homeowners. You have a covenant that you promise to do something. And if you don't, they'll cast you out. Of that. I don't know if they'll cast you out. But there is a promise type thing that you deal with this. But a better way of looking at this biblically is marriage. Right? Marriage is a covenant. It's, and what really helps us to see it is it's a relationship more than just a contract. I would hazard a guess to say that if you come to home, you know, like let's say you, you come home after, after a long day at work and either you say to your husband or to your wife, however that is, hello, covenant partner whom I've bound myself in a legal contract, how was your day today? Right? We, would we ever... Okay, so Nick does that, but if, uh, but to no other, no other sane people normally would, that would not be a safe way to address your spouse, right? So it might be true, but there's more to it. There's a relationship there. There's love there. There's a binding of, of love that you would, you would see. So if you do speak that way, let's, we need to talk that, that way uh, through these things. That's, that's basically how the covenant, how we should see it. But how does that then work for you and I? Is, does God make a covenant with, with Missy O'Day? Does, does God make a covenant with, with you, particularly? Yes, he does. This is how he works. God appoints representatives to all of us, to humanity, to speak on our behalf. This is how God has chosen to work out his plan of redemption, of salvation. He has chosen to work in such a way is that he works through a representative for his for salvation of sinners from their repent uh, from their sin, there are lots of examples that we see in a, in our world and in the Bible that we see in this way of thinking. Your elders are covenant representatives of you, appointed by God, called by God, ordained by God to lead you as shepherds. It's not because they're of their cool factor. That's definitely true, right, Caleb? Definitely not the cool factor that got us. It was. It was a humble reliance on God's call that, he, that you represent God to a people and shepherd. Our politicians, for good or for ill, are representatives of us. That's how we, we are not democracy, right? We don't all get to vote equally on things. We elect someone to represent us, and that covenant representative, for good or for ill, drives us down a road. Hopefully not off the cliff, but it's still that, that picture of a politician is exactly what's going on here. Family of parents, our children, right? Our children are not, they're, they're not their own. They're bound to their parents. And their parents are gifted by God, given to the children by God to be their leaders in a home, to shape them and to, and to love them 
in a way that is biblical, to represent Christ to them. And that is what our parents do. So this picture is, is all throughout the scriptures. And if you wanted to know how to read your Bibles, it's really this way. The whole Bible, this is a text, we're going to go to the whole Bible today. We're going to do the whole Bible. This is exciting. The whole Bible is really tied to two covenants, like how God works. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Or if I put it in the text, in the language here, the covenant of the first Adam and the covenant with the second Adam. The first Adam you find in the first two chapters of, the, of your Bible. Genesis 1 and 2 outlines how God establishes a covenant. He binds himself to Adam as a, as a representative. That means what Adam did, you did. He represented all of humanity. What happens to him happens to us. And so that is what we see in the first two chapters, that, that he was told, he was put, the whole creation was created, Adam and Eve, we'll get to that in a second, Eve was there too, but Adam and Eve were put into the garden as human representatives of this covenant. And what was the, well, we'll get to the stipulations, I don't want to jump ahead, but there was, there was a covenant and Adam broke it. So we can see in the prophets, in the book of Hosea, chapter 6 and 7, it says this. Like Adam, all Israel have transgressed the covenant. So while it doesn't say covenant of works, that's a way in which we describe it in the church. The Bible does ascribe covenant relationship to Adam in Hosea. And we see the, all the elements there of a binding of God to, a, to the humanity, of Adam being a representative, of stipulation of blessings and curses if he does or does not obey. The rest of the Bible, from Genesis 3 to Revelation, is the next covenant, the covenant of grace. And in Genesis 3.15, we hear that God establishes this new covenant where he says there will be a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And that representative will be, by grace, saving a people for himself. And that's the rest of the story of the Bible. Right? It's, it's how he promises to save us after the fall. And it's all covenants. If this doesn't make a lot of sense, that's okay. We're going to spend the, the book of Hebrews is going to drive this over and over and over again. Chapter 8 through 10, for instance, in Hebrews deals with these two covenants very clearly. But we're going to hear this over and over again. But as I just, as I introduce this, I put this down for us to see that this is how we read our Bibles, and this is what we should be seeing. So having a broad understanding of what covenant representation is, it is there's a representative of this binding relationship. What they do, we do. This is what we're going to see. Now let's look and see how it's applied in our text and see how Adam and, and Christ are those representatives. So look, look here at the ver first verse here on uh, in 5.12. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So Paul starts here, what he's already been building. If you read the book of, he excuse me, the book of Romans, you'll see Paul is building this case that we are justified by faith alone. That we're not, we're not saved uh, by what we do. We're saved apart from the works of the law. And we, he is saying, though, that, that none of us on our own would ever seek after this salvation. There is no one righteous, no, not one. That we are all sinners. And there's nothing that we do on our own to ever seek after God. All of humanity rejects God. 
They all seek to worship the creature, as it says in chapter 1. We subdue what is true and we worship the creature versus the creator. There is no one righteous. Because Adam sinned, we all sinned. So maybe you're thinking this right now and you're hearing this and you're going, man, that is so not fair. You're telling me that I, were you in the garden? Was anybody in the garden? I don't believe that we were old enough to be in the garden. And yet, from birth, I have no chance of earning a place with God. How fair is that? Great question. We'll get to it. We're going to get that question. You're going to hear, and we're going to ask it actually a couple times, as you see. We'll keep going. We will get to that, but I'm not going to answer that right now. But maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, this is not fair that God would do this. I did not sin in the garden, and yet I will be eternally damned for Adam's sin if I do not follow Christ. Yes, absolutely. That's what the text says. How does that work? We shall see. Let's pull the string a little bit on this. Let's just see here how we link Adam's sin to all humanity. Look what it says in the rest of our section here. It says, sin came into the world through one man, as it says in verse 12. Or in verse 15, it says, through one man's trespass, or 16. One man's sin, 17. One man's trespass, 18. One trespass, 19. One man's disobedience. All sin comes from Adam's sin. This is the reason. He was our representative. He acted on our behalf. When he sinned, we sinned. So what did he actually do? What was his sin that drove all humanity? What was so bad that what he did was so egregious that every human being on their own would never again have, have a, a means of having presence with, with the triune God? What did he do? Well, it tells us in Genesis 2.15 that God told Adam, the Lord commanded the man saying, you may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what did Adam have to do? He had to not eat one tree. That was it. Every, every piece of creation, everything that was lovely to the eye that he could eat, every seed-bearing fruit he had before him. In a, he had it in a garden that was beautiful, and the animals didn't fight at this point. There was no danger of a lion coming to eat you, because they wouldn't. Because there was, no, there was no animosity between animals and us. There was no, there were no, I, I will say, it doesn't say this, but I don't think there were mosquitoes at this point. But, I mean, who knows? There could, I don't know if the ticks were biting yet. I, I mean, I don't know. But we will say that all of creation was perfect and beautiful, and it had, there was nothing that would lure on its own Adam to convince him to not eat that fruit. So what does he do? Well, we hear that the problem of evil... The problem why everybody suffers, why there's cancer and death, why there's brokenness, is because Adam ate one piece of fruit. And that one piece of fruit brought in the disobedience of all of us. So you're telling me, Paul, let's just say, I'll, I'll use Paul instead of me, that the problem of evil is because of one piece of fruit. That's not fair. We'll get to that. We'll get to that if it's not fair. But... But really what we have to also start seeing is really we have to see the seriousness of our sin. Right? God is a God who is holy and loving. He's a God who is righteous. And if we break one thing, one sin, one little iota of a thing that is against, against what he tells us, he has every right. He must, being just, he must judge us. Otherwise he's no longer God. 
we don't we say well we don't kill anyone I'm not necess- I'm not sleeping around I'm not doing the big sins so God will he will accept me I'm better than that person over there but the standard isn't how I look between humans it's between the God who is perfect and who and, and me the only way to relate to a perfect God is to be perfect and so that one sin caused that what we have to do is we have to not just hate the consequence of our sin like seeing all the suffering and how horrible it is, we have to actually see the badness of our sin, those sins that we love, that we hold on to, the little ones that we don't think matter, the ones that we, don't, we do that no one else sees. You have to understand that that enough is to separate you eternally from the God of the creation. And we have to really start to see the seriousness of all of our sins. So, yes, in fact, one sin all came into the, came into the world, as it says, one trespass. And really to understand how this works. So how does it work? How does Adam's sin get onto me to where I am now? How does, how does this work? What's the wiring of this? The word, that, if you want to write it down and look at it later, the doctrinal word is called imputation. Imputation is, is the word that's in our text, and it's in others. It's, it's a doctrinal way of, of way in which it's describing how sin is put onto us. Imputation means that it is something that is not in us, but is put onto us by God. So it's not, this is different than if you've been raised in other um, traditions, let's say like a Roman Catholic understanding, where they would infuse something. That means there's something good or bad in us, and then God builds on it. But that's not what's going on here. It's much like creation. God didn't start from something. He started from nothing. The out of nothing, he creates. And out of nothing, he puts. And so imputation means that he puts from something that wasn't previously there onto us. The sin of Adam. And if you want to see how this works, well, our text begins to explain it to us. Verses 13 through 14. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, death from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, was a type of the one to come. Did I, I think I missed it. Um, yes. Basically, it's what it says here is there was death even before there were rules. People were dying even before there was law. You see this landscape that you see here. There are really three categories of all humanity. You have Adam. Then you have that time between Adam and Moses. And then you have Moses to the rest. And what this text is saying is, okay, Adam, he broke the rules. So he deserves it, right? He broke the rules. He deserves to be cast. Israel, after Moses, Moses gives them the law. The whole five books of the Bible are are basically the, the rules there's more to it, <laughs> but there, a whole of Deuteronomy is the rules of the law of how, how a nation is to act before God. Israel broke those rules like nobody's business. Like judges is just that downward spiral of they did what was right in their own eyes, and they were judged. Okay, so that's fair, right? Adam judged, Israel judged, but what about the middle? There's no law. There's no rules. There's no rules from Adam to Moses. There was nothing that was written. But it says, nevertheless, they all died. Why? Because of imputation. Because all humanity is represented by Adam. 
And so their, their, their death was a consequence of Adam's death. And theirs. Now I'm saying this, I'm emphasizing that yes, it was Adam's fault. They did all what was right in their own eyes, right? They, we all still sin. There are things individually that we do. But it really is a consequence of what Adam did as a representative, is what the text is saying. So the doctrine of the imputation, that death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression, is what's going on here. God credits to all people Adam as a representative. Adam was covenant head. What was true of him is true of us. What about Eve? Right? Have you ever thought of Eve's fault? Right? Adam was just this poor schmuck that was sitting there, right? No. If you actually go, if you go and read Genesis 2, of course I'd, I'd recommend it. Read Genesis 2. What, if you read, what, it's, a, it's a, a conversation between Eve and the snake. Can I tell you right now, just as a, probably as an aside of wisdom, if a talking snake ever talks to you, don't listen to the talking snake, right? That's a, that's a rule of the Bible. Eve listened to the snake. She saw that the fruit was good to the eye. It looked like it would be yummy to taste. And then she took it, right? She took it. And what did Adam do? What does the text say? All it says, three words, and he ate. That's all it says. So why, is it, why isn't it Eve? You know, that, that why is it not that through one woman all sin comes into the world? And through one man is not like the sin. Why does it not talk that way? Because Eve wasn't the covenant representative. It's not because Eve isn't worse or better. Eve had her own consequences. Babies are hurting. Now. It's, there's a, there is a consequence for what she did, but she wasn't the covenant head. She wasn't the representative. God didn't, for whatever reason, not because Adam is better, it's just how God chose to do this. So Eve did sin, but Adam was responsible as the covenant head. And so that is why Eve is not labeled, and this is why is going on here, despite the consequences of, of what she did, she didn't bring all of sin into humanity. Adam did. So what was the consequence of his being disobedient? It says sin comes into the world, but really what does it say? So as his disobedience, the consequence is this. It says in the text, one trespass brought condemnation. One trespass, in verse 16. Verse 18 says, one trespass led to condemnation. Verse 19, by one man's disobedience, the many were made or regarded as sinners. Condemnation. Another big, we're going to, we've got some great words today to write down and to look through. We have imputation, right? That's a good one. Condemnation is another big word that we need to understand. It's the opposite of justification. Another big word we'll talk about here in a second. But condemnation is that you're born guilty. You're, before God, you're, you're proclaimed guilty in your standing in the righteous throne room of God. Condemnation is before a standard, you're declared wrong. You're declared lacking. You don't meet up. You are guilty. That's what condemnation is. All of humanity is this and born this way. So just if I, maybe I haven't hit it hard enough right now, but I'm telling you right now that in humanity, all your neighbors, all your family, all your friends, there's not a category of Satan followers, ignorant middle class, and then loving Christians. There is either Seed of the woman or seed of the serpent. You're, another way of saying you're either following Adam or following Christ. There is no Switzerland. There is no middle ground. We're not born neutral and there's no neutral class. We're born into this world sinners with no hope. 
I'm going to give you hope. We're not ending this way. I'm telling you, this is, this is going to be good. But the text shows us rightly that there isn't, that all of humanity rejects God. So then what really is the problem? And what can be, well, in order for us to understand the solution of what God has in his gospel, we really need to understand the problem. If we think that there is an ignorant class of people, that it's their lack of knowing, then our solution is going to be education. We're going to say as long as we can just get the word out, if we get, if it's the, it's information, it's education. People aren't educated, so we're going to, we're going to have them find peace and comfort through that. Or maybe it's because society is broken that they're being disregarded. Maybe there's a, there's a, over, there's a class that's subjugating on another class. So we're going to make and we're going to build a new society. We're going to construct it where we're going to take this dysfunctional society and make it right. We're going to have better child care. We're going to have a systematic, we're going to make cultural transformation and changes, social engineering, all the like. Or maybe it's poverty. Maybe we just don't have enough. Maybe they can't even feed themselves, let alone do things. Maybe it's, it's the situation around. So we're going to, we're, the way in which we save is by di- redistributing what the people who do have stuff to the people who don't have stuff. That's how it's going to save. But the problem with the world isn't any of those things. The problem with the world is that we're born sinners and that we won't seek after God on our own. That we're dead and condemned. That we're disobedient with Adam and we're condemned with him. That's our problem. So the solution to that has to fit the problem. We need a savior who can, who can match and save us from that. And that is why Jesus had to be born a human being. So let's, let's now look at Christ. So we've seen Adam and what he has done. Adam has, has brought to us disobedience, condemnation, death, according to our text. What does Christ represent? Verse 14, the, the last half of that, that text, it says, Adam was a type of the one to come. He was a, a foreshadowing of something that was going to be coming. So Christ, who is that foreshadowing, is like Adam. There are similarities of one of which is he's, he's a covenant representative and he's human. He's like us. This is what Hebrews is going to drive home. He suffers like us. He understands us. He's like us. He's a priest like us. I mean, there's going to be so much. Next week, we're going to get into two of those reasons. So come back. <laughs> right? But for now, we will just say here, in general terms, he's human. And he has to be because he's a representative. So Adam is a type of Christ pointing to him. And so we see this again from Genesis 3 in what is going on. He is the seed of the woman who's coming. To understand, so first, what does Christ represent? He represents obedience. The first element that we see of his representation, and we see this through, is that Christ is obedient. He obeys. Verse 18, one act of righteousness. 19, one man's obedience. So notice this. This is a real key thing. Jesus comes and he doesn't change it up. So in the Old Testament, there was rules. In the New Testament, it's all grace. Have you ever heard that? Right? The, God, the God of the New Testament is love. The God of the Old Testament is rules. No, the God of the New Testament is rules, and he loves by following those rules for us. So his obedience is necessary because God doesn't change, because God is just and requires us to follow the rules, if you will, to follow his obedience. So Christ's first thing he does is he comes and he obeys. And he does this like Adam, sort of. 
What was, Adam's, what was Adam's situation when he had to obey? How was the garden? It was lovely, right? There was no tornadoes or hurricanes. There were no floods, no ticks, no mosquitoes, no animals fighting. There was food of an abundance. He had everything, right? A loving wife, right? Everything was, was perfect situation. Now, what about Christ? If you can think of when was Christ tempted, really tempted to fall away from God's obedience, where was that? It was in the desert, right? It was in the desert. So desert is like garden, right? Desert is exactly like the garden. You have all the, there's no mosquitoes or anything. Maybe not. They might be too hot. But it certainly was an arid climate. And what did Christ do to prepare himself for that temptation? Well, he didn't eat for 40 days. Right? And then he went alone. He didn't have a spouse. He didn't have any help. He had nothing. And he went and he then battled Satan. And that was the first time that Satan had ever been defeated by a human being. Up to that point, every instance for those thousands of years that humanity has been, Satan always won. But here comes Christ, and he obeys. And he fights Satan, and Satan, at least for that time, is defeated. So where does Christ then obey? So Christ is not, we think, well, the cross is where he obeys. Yes, that is the, that is the perfect picture of obedience. But there are 613 laws that are in, that really the Deuteronomy lays out, ish. Maybe 615. I'll, that was not one of my questions, so of my test. So there's over 600 laws of this, of this system of, of what God has established. And Christ followed them all for us. And then, he, and then, being perfect and righteous and truthful and obeyed, he then went and died on the cross. So he paid the penalty in obedience because the Father sent him to. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So in obedience to the Father, he dies. That's the first thing that we see here. He is, he empties himself of this. And this is where Paul points this out repeatedly in our Bibles. We see it. Philippians 2 he says, Christ empties himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being born in human form, human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that he might receive, we might receive adoption as sons. This is Christ humiliating himself, leaving perfection of that garden, Heaven is like that garden, and he left it to go to the desert and obey for us. He goes on the cross and he yells, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Through obedience. And so, in that obedience, what does that bring? What did it bring? So in Adam's disobedience, we have condemnation. The result of Christ's obedience is justification. Justification. There's that third, I guess, what are we on, three now? That's another... Yes, but it is critical to understanding the whole of the Bible and the, really how the gospel works. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification, verse 16. Verse 18, one act of righteousness leads to justification. 19, by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous, justified. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. That means you're declared, not wrong, you're declared right according to God's standards in front of him. That means that you can go before God and be declared right, just, 
perfect of sorts. Declared. This is declarative. You're not actually perfect. We all know we're not perfect. But in God's standard, in God's eyes, he sees you through his son. He sees his son, and he looks at you. If you have faith in the son, <clears throat> and you're justified. This is what it means. This is what all of Romans 5, up to 5, has been dealing with, is that you're saved by faith. If you trust in Christ as your representative, then the obedience is put onto you. And how is it put onto you? How was sin put onto you by Adam? By imputation. How is righteousness put onto you? Through faith, by imputation. There's nothing good in you, and yet he puts onto you the righteousness through imputation by faith alone. You see how that works? So it's not, that is so important for us. We don't earn it. You don't have to work at it initially. There's nothing you do. There's nothing you can do. He did it all. And that is such a glory. And so this is where we're seeing, as the human representative, he did it for you by faith. You can trust in that. What a glory this is. So, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for fallen men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, but one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Romans 5, 18 through 20. Law is not there to save us. Law is not there to, to help us to get ourselves right. Law helps us to see that we're sinners and that we need Christ. In verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, obedience leads to justification leads to life. We can have life now and in the future because he's human and because he represents and because of what he did that we hold to him. Because of his humanity, he is able to follow what the first Adam broke. Because of his divinity, because he's fully God, as we've already seen in Hebrews 1, he's able in the scope of things to cover all of our sins. All of it. All of those who hold past to him. It's all covered, and it can't be because he's God. But he represents us, and he, he understands us because he's man. So in conclusion, what does this mean for us? He became man to represent us so that we could eternally have life. And if we believe in his name, if we turn to him, we can have that life. This is what Hebrews is talking about. Don't go back, because all, those back, all the ways back, the rules, they, all the rules were there of the old covenant ceremonies, the temple. They just pointed to the reality that there would be one coming, there would be one seed of the woman who would need to come to die for you. That you're, you deserve death, but there will be grace. Don't go back to thinking that we can earn it. Because the perfect human, Jesus, has already done it. So we have, to get, we have to cage our minds again, really to start to see what the Bible is saying covenantally. This is why we're Presbyterian, <clears throat> just to say. We're Presbyterian because we believe that, we're, that God orders his church by elders, presbyteros, Presbyterian, that, he, that there are representatives to us that we hold to, and that's how they, are, they shepherd us. This is why we baptize our kids. 
Right? This is it. This is why. We, it's not because the kid has to declare something about the promise. No. It's, we're, t- we're holding fast to promises that God gives to us and our children covenantally. That he is representing those children. That he promises. And so we baptize knowing that's true. This is why we have the table. It's a covenant meal to the people who are united to Christ by faith. Only by those who are united by Christ by faith. To feed upon, to see, to know the reality of there will be a future wedding feast because the human Christ came and died and we will celebrate that for, for eternity in heaven. And so we get to see the picture of that here today. When I was in Germany, I taught Awana. I don't know if anyone of you have ever dealt with Awana. Ben, it's like a, it's a, I don't know, oh, it's a non-Presbyterian, but it's fine. It's good. It's a, it's a way in which we ra- cha- uh, teach our children verses of memory and all. Just, it's a great way of shaping our children to see the whole of Scripture. Uh, and I was asked to teach anything I wanted, right? So I picked Genesis. I wanted to pick Genesis. So, and I had third to sixth graders, right? This is, so I'm going to teach them all the doctrines because thir- they can handle it. They're third to sixth graders. So we begin in Genesis like these things, and we say, and, and I had them basically all understanding this battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And so whenever we read Genesis and we started to see Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, or we just saw the back and forth, they would see seed of the woman with Cain, seed of the serpent with Abel, right? And they would boo and they would cheer, and it was... It was sort of, you know, a little hokey of sorts, but it was still, they got it. They understood. They understood that it wasn't them. It was who represented them. Either the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent. And the, and the Bible, oh, they would go through it. The parents started coming in as we were, they didn't get it quite as, quite as quickly, right? The Germans, they got it because it was in Germany. They actually, they weren't American. They had an easier time uh, not having that individual stuff. And it's just what we have to work through. But church, we're going to get there. But let's hold fast to this reality, right? That there are really the two camps. So, so when you go up to heaven and God asks you before the throne of God, why should I let you into this place? You can say because of Jesus Christ who represents me. But you must work this out. You must around your tables, talk to your children. You must think this through. It's not about being present in church that saves you, but by where you hold your truth and your trust. You're either in Adam or in Christ. Which flag do you fly? Let's pray through that together as we grow together, and let's question that, and let's, let's grow in understanding the assurance that you can have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.